Thank you, Lord Jesus, you are indeed good. Thank you that there is salvation in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Ah, you sometimes think you hope you don't lose your voice or get a sore throat before you start to speak. But, oh, it is good to declare the truth, is it not? Well, I hope you'll um, excuse me, the, the face fungus this morning, as I, I've been on holiday for a week. Uh, this will probably be off by tomorrow, probably, probably. But um, you may have noticed the last few weeks, if you're observant, that you know, hair has been a bit of a, an issue for the male members of my family uh, in recent weeks. And you see, I can't do it up here, so that's all I can do, you see. <laughs> so that's my attempt. Anyway, so yes, I was away last week. I know Paul spoke to you, continuing our series on Proverbs, his sex talk, as he called it. I'll catch up on that later. I haven't heard it yet. But I missed that. I also missed the water slide. Was that good? Who was on the water slide? Oh, come on. Oh, anyway. Wonderful. Well, we're going to look at Proverbs, as we said. Proverbs is about the wisdom of God for humanity, for our good for our best. The Proverbs of Solomon, it says, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline and understanding and insight and a whole bunch of other things, doing what is right and just and fair, but supremely for attaining wisdom. These God-inspired Proverbs are written so that you and I might get wisdom, that we might be wise about how we live. And wisdom means two related things. It means fearing the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9. That's step one, acknowledging God, recognizing he made us, his ways are right, his laws are good, that he knows best. And along with that, it means living rightly according to his plan, his blueprint, his manual for human life. Adopting his ways as the compass For our life, conforming ourselves to his model, the way he has designed us to be. We all know, don't we, you you have a handbook for the car, you have a handbook for the telly, for the Ikea bookcase, whatever it is. It contains instructions and warnings and we can follow it or not. And if you're like me with Ikea, you follow it to the letter. Because experience shows there are elephant traps that you don't find out about till later. If you've used the wrong bit of wood or in the wrong place or got it the wrong way round, later, oh... Should have followed the instructions. So for best results, you follow the handbook closely. You don't simply do your own thing. And these proverbs are written so that we can get the best results, so that our lives work, so that we have wisdom for living. They're written not to restrict us and hem us in, to stop us having fun. They're not even just so that we may live righteously as an end in itself. Even more than that, they're written for our Good, because God loves us. Of course, fools will scoff at it because they scoff at God. But if you are wise, you want what is best. And here it is in this book. Now, this morning, I've just got one verse for you from Proverbs today. I'd never read it and noticed it before preparing for this sermon series. But when I did, do you know, it just smacked me in the face. It grabbed hold of me. It gripped me. I knew that's it. 
and it has wisdom in it for all of us, but for a few, this could today be a warning cry that saves you from disaster. And that really is my prayer this morning. Now, suspense, before I read it, I want to tell you about the ancient city of Constantinople, which is the modern-day city of Istanbul. It was founded by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great in 330 AD. It was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, which became the Byzantine Empire. And let me just read a bit. The city flourished for over a thousand years, thanks in part to the strength of its defensive walls. More than 40 miles of barricades surrounded the city, but the most famous were the Theodosian walls, which blocked armies from advancing from the mainland. They included a moat, a 27-foot outer wall and a massive inner wall that was 40 feet tall and 15 feet thick. And troops stood guard on the ramparts at all times, ready to rain arrows and a type of ancient napalm called Greek fire on any enemy that dared attack them. The walls succeeded in turning back a host of would-be conquerors from the Arabs to Attila the Hun, but... They finally met their match in 1453 when the Ottoman Empire besieged the city with a frightening new weapon, the cannon. Now the cannon itself was not enough to get through these walls. It was a new weapon, it was inefficient, it wasn't accurate, it took ages to reload. You could only fire it seven times a day. So after you'd, boom, you then had time to rebuild the walls again before the next one came. (laughs) But one night... The Ottomans concentrated all their fire together on this one section of wall that was weak because it was built at a later time than the other walls and it had already been damaged and it had been repaired. So this was a weak section and they concentrated all their fire there and they broke through the walls enough for the army to enter. And it said after using their artillery to blast holes in the walls, the Turks poured through the breach and captured Constantinople, effectively toppling the Byzantine Empire. So, here's the verse from Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Now, you know the concept from the oldest biblical times, much older than Constantinople. Think of Jericho. A city whose city walls all around the outside are its defence. The walls are there, you shut the gates, no one can get in. So to capture the city, you either have to lay siege to it and wait for all the food and water to run out, or you have to break through the walls to get in. Or in the case of Jericho, you can march around it seven times and blow your trumpets and wait for the Lord to do his stuff. But that's the exception, not the rule. When Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in 589 BC, he did both things. He laid siege to the city until the people were starving, and he attacked it, amongst other things, With battering rams, Ezekiel tells us that. And the end came when one night the city walls were broken through. And when that happened, the whole army of Israel abandoned the city and fled that night. And the the absolutely unimaginable had happened. Jerusalem, the city of God and his covenant people had fallen to the Babylonians and the destruction was total. You see, when the city walls are broken down, the disaster is complete. Just as at Constantinople, a whole empire came to an end. At Jerusalem, the whole people went into exile. The disaster is total. And you see, often when a city was besieged, the defenders were given a choice. You can either surrender now and we'll let you live. But if you don't, then when we do get into the city, there will be no mercy. You'll all die. That's your choice. So for the city walls to be broken down spells utter ruin. 
And like a city whose walls are broken down, so is a man who lacks self-control. You see, if you lack self-control, you're heading for utter disaster. It is potentially that serious. Once the walls are broken down, you're exposed. You're wide open. You're defenseless. The enemy can come in and plunder and kill and destroy as he likes and you are powerless to stop him. If you lack self-control, you are at your enemy's mercy. And he can come and wreak havoc in your life and you are powerless to stop him. You see, here's the really scary thing. Like Constantinople, you saw the, the walls there. They're still there, much of them. They look amazing. Like Constantinople, there can be so much that is strong. Most of the walls remained intact. The city would still have looked hugely impressive from the outside. But it's all useless if there is just one place where the walls are breached. And you see, your life can be so strong in many ways. You know, you can know the word. You can have a good prayer life. You can be a mature Christian. You can be in a position of ministry. You can be one of the upfront guys. You can be the lead pastor. So much that is good. Much good fruit. But disaster can come at any moment. And all of this can count for nothing. It can all be swept away if you lack one thing. Self-control. It's that important. This one underrated virtue. Self-control. Now we could look at examples, couldn't we? You could think of road rage. Where people do stupid things. They overreact out of all proportion. They've had a bad day at work. Someone cuts them up and they just lose it. An outbreak of violence. I read about a cyclist who was dead because a car cut him up at the lights. And if you're a cyclist, you feel vulnerable, don't you? So he kicked out at this car as it went past. And the guy stopped. And he thumped him. One punch. But he killed him. Or anger can boil over in what we say in the heat of the moment. It might be husband and wife, it might be people who are genuinely good friends, colleagues. But in that moment, something is said that is meant to hurt and it does hurt. And once said, you can't take it back. And that relationship can take years to rebuild. It may never be the same again. We think of parents watching their kids play football. You read about it in the papers, don't you? This is an epidemic. The parents who just get too involved and too het up. And the statistics are horrendous for the things that are said and done. And the losses of temper and the abuse of the referee. And the fighting for a kids under 10s football match. And that might be you. And you might have disgraced yourself. And the match may be over. But the people around, they won't forget what they've seen. Maybe it's just impulsiveness. Maybe you're just the type of person you can't wait. You won't listen. You don't want to think about it. No, you just want to do it. You make foolish decisions on the spur of the moment. You hand your notice in. You make that extravagant purchase. Well, if I do it now, it's done. You take that risk. But then there's no going back. Maybe it's not a one-off thing. Maybe, maybe it's money. Maybe you've got a spending problem. You just like the feel it gives you to spend. You're spending what you haven't got. You're in debt. You're getting deeper. No one knows until it's too late that it all comes crashing down. And you might end up losing your home. That might cost you your marriage. Perhaps it's money in a different way. Perhaps it's greed. Financial gain. Well, you just bend the rules a bit here. You just do that deal that, well, it's not exactly dodgy, but it's just a bit close to the wire. 
Maybe you lie to the tax man one, just one time too. Well, everybody does it, doesn't they? But then you do it once too often and, whoa, then you are in trouble. Perhaps it's overeating, comfort eating maybe. Maybe you, you, you just can't stop yourself. You, you keep up appearances, you laugh it off. Well, everyone deserves a little treat. But deep down, you know there's a problem. And the most destructive part is that you might hate yourself for it. Or alcohol. What, me? Got a problem? Huh, don't be daft. Well, sure, I, I like a drink as much as the next guy, but me? Huh, well, we can hide it. We can easily deceive others and we can even deceive ourselves. You know, I'm in control. I could stop any time I wanted. But every month the hook just goes a little bit deeper. I don't know much about drugs. Drugs, the downward slopes, even steeper. Maybe it's sexual temptation. Could be one big mistake when you're on your own one night, or perhaps you're away from home. You had a bit to drink. Could be the the moment when months of ever increasing flirting, harmless, just a bit of well, and that might be the time it just tips over into action, and then you've done it. Could be the secret addiction to online pornography finally comes to light. One mistake, the fallout. The long-term consequences can be horrendous. You name it. You fill in your own scenario. I don't know where your vulnerabilities may lie, but I know we've all got them. It's part of being human. It goes with the territory. And none of us are immune. Not the wisest, not the most mature, not the most godly. Let him who thinks he stands take care lest he falls, writes Paul, in the context of temptation. See, if you think you're okay, you better watch out. Because without self-control, we are all fair game. We're all just ripe for the plucking. And complacency just gets the devil rubbing his hands in anticipation. See, self-control is our only protection. That's our safeguard, Proverbs 25, 28 says. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a person who lacks self-control. We could turn it around. We could say, if you have self-control, your defences can stand firm. You need not fall. But either way around, self-control is priceless. Now, you must realise, of course, it's not something that's particularly valued by the world at large, not in our culture. We're positively encouraged, aren't we, to pursue our desires, let out our emotions, do and say as we feel. It's our right There are very few moral boundaries. Come on, have another. Everybody does it. Don't be such a bore. Self-control is often seen as dull, unnecessary, and probably even as evidence that you're a bit uptight. You're unable to let yourself go and have fun. Live for the moment. Spend that money. Why wait? Have it now. Instant gratification. Because you're worth it. Oh, I hate that line. But you have to remember the stark words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. To where? To destruction. Many enter through it. Narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. You see, you're not on the same road as the many. You're different from them. You're on the narrow road that leads to life. But it's easy to slip off a narrow road, isn't it? And the temptations, the snares, the pulls are many. Oh, just step over here for a few minutes. Just have a few minutes, that's all. That's why you need self-control. 
Jesus says in Luke 13, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now, it's interesting because the Greek word there for making an effort is the word for an athletic contest. We could say fight to enter the narrow door. And if I have one big point, I want you with all my heart to hear, it's this. Christian, you are in a fight. You're in a fight both to survive and to win. You see, it's there in the very language, isn't it? The word for self-control in Proverbs 25, it means restraint. The ability to hold yourself back from what will harm you. To, to restrain an impulse from within. There's a, there's a jostling there. Or self-control. The word itself recognises there are impulses, desires that come from within us, from ourself, that we have to control and deny. We have to master ourselves. There's a struggle that goes on. And more than that, there is an external enemy. See, our verse in Proverbs 25, it's a picture of conflict, of warfare. There's an attacker who breaks through a defender's defences in battle. And your enemy has a name. I've mentioned him already, deliberately so, I mean the devil, whom Jesus and the New Testament writers had no hesitation in describing repeatedly as a real, personal, hostile entity who is intent on your destruction. Now when I say the devil, it's just shorthand for the devil, his agents, minions, demons. I am no expert in the hierarchy of hell, but just that's what I mean when I say the devil. And he will lie to you and he will tempt you any way he can to get you off the narrow path and to get through your defences. And what's more, having done that, he'll then condemn you mercilessly for any failure or disaster he can lure you into. And do you know the New Testament has a verse relating to his activity that's very similar indeed to our verse in Proverbs. Be self-controlled and alert, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. Sorry, be what? Self-controlled. Ah, why is that? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Summary. Your enemy, the devil, will get you if you are not self-controlled. That's exactly Proverbs 25, 28 in a New Testament context. So be very clear. You are in a fight for the highest of stakes, your spiritual survival and your well-being. Can I just say in passing, that is one reason to pray for your leaders, by the way. They're vulnerable, just like we all are. And the enemy would love to get through their defences. And you know, when Christian leaders fall into sin, and we've seen it, there's a big exposure, a great fall, whether it's sexual temptation, whether it's money and corruption, whether it's both, I don't think it necessarily means that they've been hypocrites for years. I don't think it necessarily means they've been living a lie from the beginning. Everything about their ministry was false. Of course, that's what the media will say. They love it. But it might just be their defences were inadequate for the fight. The necessary degree of self-control was not there when the spiritual heat was on. It might just be they weren't accountable enough to others to get the support they needed. Don't judge them too harshly, despite their sin for which they are certainly responsible. Because one part of the story might simply be they were in the fight and they lost. Back to you and me. Now, if we understand we're in a fight with a ruthless enemy 
and our defense and means of victory is self-control. How can we win? That's the big question. Well, let's turn to a noted source of wisdom and truth and inspiration. Let's turn to Disney. Let's meet Ursula the sea witch and Ariel the mermaid who longed to be human so that she could meet the man she'd rescued when he fell unconscious into the sea and whom she was now in love with, although she'd never actually met him. The problem is, you see, the land above is strictly out of bounds if you're a mermaid, so there's no way. So, oh, hang on, this gives Ursula an opportunity. Now, Ursula, of course, is evil through and through. But she spins Ariel this tale and she sings this song about how she loves to help poor unfortunate souls. That's what she uses her magic for. And of course, all she really wants to do is to enslave her. So she offers Ariel a deal. And I hope this works. Now you watch that. And we know Ursula is evil. And it's so obvious. And we're screaming inside, no, Ariel, no, don't do it. We know, of course, it will end up in disaster. But Ariel is too blinded, too obsessed to see it. So here's the point of that. We're almost shouting at the screen, no, because we know who it is that's offering the deal. Don't do it. She's lying to you. She's tricking you. But so often... We can be just like Ariel. All we see is the bait on the hook and we don't look beyond it because we don't want to. We don't ask ourselves, 
Whose voice is this? Who's behind this? Who's offering me this pleasure, this satisfaction? Because if we did, and if we could see what he was really like and what he was really wanting to achieve when he dangles his temptation in front of us, we would run a mile. We would shout at ourselves, no, don't do it, just as we do to Ariel. But you see, we imagine we're so much smarter and we can take the bait and not get hooked. We can play with fire and not get harmed. In the language of Proverbs 6, which maybe Paul talked about last week, it says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? No, you can't do it without getting hurt. And yet we think we can. Now, despite what I said a minute ago about contemporary culture, I found this in a a student advisory article, of all things, about self-control. It says, lacking self-control is dangerous. It provides you temporary pleasure, but leaves you with long-term pain, remorse, or regret. It bites you in the ass, sorry. And all you can do is beat yourself up, wishing you didn't give in. That's what your enemy wants for you. It's not what I want for you. So the first step to winning is this. You ask yourself, who's really behind this? You remind yourself what your enemy's agenda is. The one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, as Jesus says in John 10. And then ask yourself, why would I do what my sworn enemy wants me to do? Like Ursula, he wants to harm us, not to do us good. Why would I do what he says? Know your enemy, recognize his voice, and then make your choice. John Piper says this, self-control is a response to what you believe to be at stake. He uses this example. If your boss or your wife was in the room, then whatever what you would otherwise do, at that moment, you would have enough self-control not to look at online pornography. Because of what was at stake. Even if that was your weakness. Even if normally that would be a problem. If your boss is there in your office, if your wife is there in the room, you wouldn't even think about it. Suddenly you have self-control because you know what is at stake. And the problem with temptation is that so often we do not recognize what's at stake until, like Ariel, it's too late and there's a dreadful price to pay. So recognize your enemy, this prowling lion who is out to devour you, to break down your walls and to plunder your life. Recognize what's at stake. And then, as Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Now, I'm not saying that every temptation, every weakness, every sinful desire is a direct demonic attack on you no not at all scripture is clear evil desires are part of our fallen nature as sinful people they don't disappear once we're saved and born again james writing to christians says each one of you is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed and sin is a result paul in romans 7 talks about the conflict when i want to do good evil's right there with me In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Sin is living in me, he says, and it wages war. 1 Peter 2 urges us, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. See, this is still the language of the fight that we're in. It's still battle language, even though here the enemy is within us, rather than external 
It's the devil's work in the fall that we're wrestling with rather than the devil himself. So it really doesn't make a lot of difference. The devil knows your weaknesses. He knows the buttons to press. He knows your weak moments. And he'll play a long game. He'll wait an opportune time, as scripture says, in the context of Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. So we don't have to worry too much about distinguishing our own evil desires and the devil's temptations. Our response must be the same. Know your enemy. Know the stakes. Stand firm with self-control. Oh, but, you know, I, I knew it was wrong, but I just couldn't help it. I just couldn't help myself. That's what we often hear, isn't it? That's what we sometimes say, isn't it? But for a Christian, that simply isn't true, and it won't wash. We bear personal responsibility for our choices and for our sins, whatever the pressures. Scripture specifically says, 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So the ball's back in our court, no excuses. So how then can we stand firm? How can we develop the self-control that we need in order to be safe against the enemy? Let me give you a few answers which I fervently hope might help. Firstly, self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. Now that is good news. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. If he lives within you and is at work to make you more like Jesus, to continue the good work that he's already begun, then the fruit of the Spirit grows naturally. It's a natural process in a supernatural context. We do not have to do anything for it to grow, except, as Jesus said, remain in me And then you'll bear much fruit, including ever-increasing fruit of self-control as the Spirit transforms us by his power from within. See, the word in the Greek for self-control here is enkratea, which means power from within. Power or control over ourselves that comes not from our own effort, but from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It's a supernatural process. It's a work of the Spirit that happens naturally of its own accord, or rather of his own accord. Now that's good news, you see. The source of spiritual self-control is him. We're not dependent on our own so limited resources. We win through his power within us. But we still have a responsibility. Not to try harder. I've said before, trying harder is never the answer for a Christian. We have a responsibility to choose to cooperate with him. Live by the Spirit, Paul says just a few verses earlier. Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh, you might know it has. But flesh doesn't mean sexual sin specifically. It means all the natural appetites at work in our fallen being. You see, we can choose to live by the Spirit or we can choose to live according to the sinful nature. That is still a real part of us. And someone has said it's like two dogs that regularly fight. If you feed one of them daily, and if you starve the other one, then the dog that wins will be the one that you feed. So if we choose to feed ourselves on the things that have the Spirit's life within them, the Word of God, time in prayer, praying in tongues, fellowship with our brothers, and if we starve the things that we know feed our sinful desires, then we will find, not instantly, But over time, increasingly, it becomes true, as Paul says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That is the long-term answer. Now, some of you know I like spicy food. I like especially hot chilies. Yes. 
I was in Chesham High Street a couple of months ago. They have a, a sort of local produce market every, every month, I think it is. And there was a guy there with a stall selling chilli sauce and chilli plants. So I bought one for £4.50, and here it is shortly afterwards. That's it. It's a few weeks later. It looks massive, actually. It's only about six inches high. Anyway, Fat Man Chilies, the business was called, by the way. Now, I put it on a windowsill where it gets the sun. And I watered it just as the fat man said. I watered it a little bit each day and twice if it's a really hot day. And recently I repotted it. See now, there we are. I repotted it in the garden in a bigger pot. And it's doing well. And, you know, it's just started. You can't see them there, but it's just started. It's first little tiny green chilies just started to grow. Just starting to bear fruit. Now... I have no control at all on the fruit-bearing process. I can't influence it or control it. I have no idea at all what goes on chemically, biologically, why it grows, why it produces chilies. Not a clue. But what I can do is to contribute to the environment within which that process takes place. I've provided sunshine and water in a bigger pot. I've done things which are favourable to growth. And it's beginning to bear fruit. It's taken time, but I've persevered. And that's exactly how you can cooperate with the Holy Spirit to provide the favourable environment within which he will supernaturally grow the vital fruit of self-control in your life. Not instantly, but over time, with guaranteed results of increasing fruit as you persevere. A supernatural process that happens naturally as we cooperate. Live by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature because the fruit of self-control will grow. So, ways to win. Cultivate the fruit of self-control. What else can we do? Secondly, we can choose to practice self-control. To exercise that muscle, if you like, to help it grow. I'll give you one example. I remember Ian Stackhouse, former pastor of this church, he gave a challenge from the pulpit one time. We did have a pulpit in those days. He said, you tell me you haven't got an issue with alcohol. You're in control. Okay, then, give it up for a month. Have no alcohol for a month. Then you can tell me you're okay. Then I'll listen. Good point, I thought. So I did it then. I've done it once since, but that was a long time ago. Now, as you know, I enjoy my wine. So I've told my family, and I'm telling you now, so that I really will do it. I make myself accountable. I'm not just intending to do it. I'm going to do it again in September. I don't have to. You don't have to. But why not? If it's not alcohol, it might be something else. Social media, maybe. That might be a good thing. I know someone who's done that. But grow your self-control by exercising it. Take opportunities to keep those defences strong, to make sure they're intact. You know your areas of weakness. Thirdly, deal radically with your lack of self-control. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember shopping one time many years ago, uh, when you actually went shopping rather than going online. And I remember I saw a polo shirt, I liked it, and I bought it. Not one, but three, because there were three colours. And I wanted all of them. It wasn't the money. I, I knew three was too many, you see. It wasn't the money. It was more that I hadn't been able to restrain myself to normal bounds and to go without something I wanted. And it troubled me. So that evening I prayed, and I said sorry to the Lord, and then I cut one of them up. It was the yellow one, so it probably wasn't such a loss. <laughs> now, you may think that's stupid. Okay, you shouldn't have bought it, but you had bought it, so why do that now? 
that's just stupid. But you see, I was determined not to let myself get away with it, not to validate my lack of self-control, because that wasn't the way I wanted to live. It wasn't the way I wanted to, to decide next time. Now, you may think it's crazy. That's up to you. But all I'll say is this, if you're serious about developing self-control because you recognise it's important, then there will be times when you have to make a choice to deal radically with yourself. Be hard on yourself. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, Jesus said. That's radical. Well, something that's got a little bit of that flavour in. Don't allow yourself to get away with your loss of self-control. Where you can, go back and put it right. While we're on that subject, materialism, I guess, for many of us, is a really hard area when it comes to self-control. The things we buy, our leisure pursuits, our lifestyle. We're conditioned to think and to expect we should have the things we want, and increasingly so. That's our culture. You've earned it. Now enjoy it. Why not? Treat yourself. But I have to say, that is not the way of the kingdom. Not that those things are wrong. But let me just ask you, are you able to choose to go without things that you want? Can you say with Paul, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether living in plenty or in want? If not, then your lack of self-control might not bring you crashing down, but it will throttle your spiritual life. You remember the weeds in the parable of the sower that choked the seed. Desires for other things was one of them. I'm not here to make any judgments, but I do just challenge you to examine yourself. Examine yourself. Godliness with contentment is great gain, far more so than an abundance of things. That's a digression. Let's go back to the main theme. Lastly, the last way you can develop self-control. Confess your sins. Confess your weakness to someone you trust who will not judge you, but who will hold you to account for your own good. If you have habitual sin in your life in any area through lack of self-control, I suggest to you that this is a must. You have to deal ruthlessly with your sin before it deals ruthlessly with you. And you cannot do it on your own. See, if you keep it to yourself in secret, then however genuine your desire to be free, what will happen is that you'll try harder, you may pray harder, you'll fall You'll beat yourself up about it. You'll resolve to try harder. You'll fail again. And the guilt that you feel actually serves to reinforce that cycle of failure. It doesn't help you break free as you might think it would. It doesn't work like that. It's a negative force. You see, the way to freedom is to swallow hard, be courageous, and to tell someone. And I know from experience that very act of bringing it into the light breaks something spiritually. I can't explain it, but it's true. Just doing that breaks something, quite apart from the support that you get as a result. I could be talking about many things. I've got to say the snare of online pornography is a great example. That may not be an issue for you at all, but it is for many. And I know... If it had been around when I was a young Christian, I tell you, I would not have coped. If that is you, if it's anything else for you, if you're caught in a snare in a similar way, I tell you today, you can be free, but you have to take the first step and to share the problem with a brother you trust. I appeal to you to do that, as I've done myself in the past.
You've nothing to lose by taking that step except your pride. But you've got everything to lose if you keep silent. It's just too important not to act. If you're serious about dealing with it, tell somebody, get help. And you see, when you do, the God who gives grace to the humble will draw alongside. And as you come to him, the one who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, you'll receive mercy and find grace to help you in times of need. That's the promise of Hebrews 4. That's my heart for you today. I do not want the enemy to have the victory in your life, to be able to walk in and ravage your life through lack of self-control, whatever your issues are. I don't want you to crash and burn in flames through this one weakness when there's so much else in your life may be strong. See, wherever you are weak and vulnerable through lack of self-control, I promise you, there is a way to find help through the supernatural resources of God made available to you through his spirit and through his body. See, the grace of God, did you hear that in Hebrews? It doesn't just forgive us, it also helps us with his mighty strength. It teaches us, Titus says, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. You don't know how to do it? That's okay. God says, my grace will teach you. That's what Titus says. My grace will teach you if you come to me. The promise of scripture in Romans 6, which I have held on to through gritted teeth, is that sin shall not be your master as you offer yourself to him because you're not under law, but you're under his wonderful grace. It might not be easy, this struggle with a sinful nature. It might not be quick and it will never be complete, this side of glory. But Paul asks, who will rescue me from this body of sin? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He can do what you cannot. You may stumble a hundred times. That doesn't matter. We all stumble in many ways, James says. We're all in the same boat. There's no special shame reserved for your sin. See, the question isn't about forgiveness. That's not in doubt. Forgiveness is always available in abundance. The question is about victory. Who's going to win? There's a line in the movie Terminator 2 where this remorseless cyborg is closing in on Sarah Connor. And the soldier who's come back from the future to protect her, he's down, he's had it, he can't go on. And in the desperation of that moment, she yells at him, On your feet, soldier! We're not going to lose. You're not going to give up. We will beat that thing. And if you have fallen a hundred times, I say to you today, on your feet, soldier, get up for the hundredth time and fight. It's the direction of travel that matters, not how many times you fall. Are you still on your feet? Are you still going forward? Are you still in the fight? Because you must not let your enemy win. There is a way to victory, to self-control, to the security of strong walls, in the place of the broken down walls of today. Because I tell you, his grace is sufficient for you. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength and through his body, which is so often the way he works. Amen? Amen. Let's just pray together. I'm sorry I've been too long. We're going to have communion in a minute. Uh, I apologize for the day, but let's just pray, shall we? Let's pray. As we come to communion, remind ourselves, as Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace. Let us approach the communion table this morning.
with confidence we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. As we come, don't offer any part of yourself to sin, Paul says, as an instrument of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Lord, as we come this morning, we offer ourselves to you. And as we do that, the promise is, and let's declare today, no matter what my struggle, no matter how long it's been going on, I declare the truth. As I come to you, Lord Jesus, sin shall not be my master, because I'm not under law, but under grace. And Lord, I declare to you again today, I'm going to fight it through. I'm going to do what's necessary. I'm going to speak to someone if I have to. But Lord, I'm going to press into you. I'm going to offer myself to you. Sin shall not be your master. Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And if you're struggling today, I tell you, even in the midst of your struggles, if you are reaching out sincerely to God, you're already forgiven. As you come to communion this morning, whatever your struggles, if you bring them to him, you're already clean. His blood has done it. He's washed you clean and there is power in the blood for your salvation and for strength and for victory and for breakthrough. So wherever you are today, come, come and take communion and say, Lord, I am yours. Sin shall not be your master. I come and I ask for your grace to help me. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Julian. Well, there we go. Um, time is pressing, uh, so we'll take communion together in just a second. Uh, the prayer ministry team will serve us. Uh, they'll put themselves in the usual places uh, around the room, which I'm going to ask them to do now. Uh, prayer ministry team and some trusted helpers. We've got non-alcoholic wine here if anybody wants it. That's there. And just um, a little story whilst they're setting up, if you can stand one of my stories. Uh, a few days ago, I'm, I know that I'm going to be on the platform here, uh, and I'm not having a great day. Uh, I had several cannonballs lobbed at my wall, um, at one of the weak parts of my wall, I won't bore you with the details. I could point to all the human excuses, but they won't stand up. Uh, but at the in the end of that process, I got incredibly angry. Uh, and I suspect it was a process, not an event. So I got really angry. I won't bore you with the details, uh, but I was on one. I was given it both barrels uh, and a little bit more, perhaps. Uh, I was very angry. Uh, not, I knew at the time, and I'm saying to God, mate, I'm on, the, I'm on the platform on Sunday. I was hoping to have a better week than this. And he'd sort of, yeah, I know. Um, but the thing is, at the end of that, I, I knew even as, you, even as you're in the anger, you know that this isn't right, but, and you know that God can fix it, and you know that he's watching, uh, but you can go to him later on and say, uh, that wasn't a great day, was it? I'm so sorry that happened. You can ask for forgiveness. Uh, and it took a couple of goes, to be fair. Um, first time I just, yeah, that's the thing to do. It wasn't really until the next morning um, that was on my knees praying and we did the deal. Uh, I knew that I was forgiven, knew 
that God had dealt with it, knew that when Jesus went to the cross, he was intimately involved in that anger because he bore it on the cross for me. So I chose uh, to hand it over to Jesus and he's fixed it. Uh, And now I am rejoicing in the fact that I'm free from it, which is great. So I'm going to ask the ministry, uh, the uh, Tim, just to pray for us, uh, sorry, to play for us gently whilst we take communion. Uh, I'm going to be first in the queue today because I need this as much as anybody. So if you all indulge me just a second, uh, I'm going to be first in this queue here. Please feel free uh, to, take, uh, to take communion, to share the bread and the wine, and we'll end the meeting uh, in a few minutes' time when it's appropriate. If you would like somebody to pray for you uh, a little more specially, uh, then when communion's over, the prayer ministry team will be in the same place as they are now. So when communion's over, if you would like them to pray for you, you only have to ask. So let's celebrate what Jesus has done for us. It's the only hope we have.